This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Hey everybody, Jen Hatmaker here your host of the For the Love podcast. You guys, welcome to the show. We are in the most darling, cozy series called For the Love of Feeding These People. Hello. You may have remembered that I wrote a cookbook called Feeding These People. (laughs) It's called Feed These People. And the series is Feeding These People because we are very, very into synergy here at the podcast. And today I cannot even contain my excitement about this next guest. Because guess what? Everybody, what pairs better with food than wine? Literally nothing. Like we know this and this is not new. But what is wonderfully new to our community is earth shattering Noel Burgess. Oh, and the fact that his whole job is being a wine writer and influencer. And first of all, how do we get that job? How can that be all of our job? Second of all, let me tell you about Noel. After growing up on the East Coast, he now lives in wine country in Northern California with his wife. But here's the thing about Noel. He gets it. He's not snobby about wine at all. And here's what's so great about him. And I don't want to steal his thunder because he's going to tell you all about this. But even though he's a master of his craft, literally, he started drinking wine four years ago. So he's like us. He's just like our kind of guy. He makes wine approachable. He's a recent learner. And he he kind of, he approaches wine like a learner. And he says, Wines are as diverse as people, spectacular in their perfect imperfections, shaped by their distinct environments, and always evolving. Isn't that great? Like, he's an incredible writer, and this is the kind of guy that I want to be my guide here, and I'll tell you why specifically. Not only is he delightful and smart and knowledgeable and talented, he is completely about working toward more diversity and inclusion in wine, food, and travel, which is so important. I'm so happy that he cares about this, that he's talking about this, that he is working to push the needle forward on DEI and diversity inclusion in the wine industry, which is so notoriously white and inaccessible and for the well-off. And so 
this matters. This matters. This is important. So not only does he have his work located in food and wine, which is just so dreamy, but he's working to make the industry even better, even stronger, more representative and more true to the world. So if you don't already know why I wanted him on the show, now you do. I absolutely love this conversation. He is delightful. He's charming. He's funny. He's interesting. So guys, grab your glass of Cabernet and settle in. I'm so pleased to share my conversation with the absolutely wonderful Noelle Burgess. Noel, welcome, welcome, welcome to the For the Love podcast. I have like been waiting for this day to meet you. <laughs> we'll see if you feel that way afterwards, but let's, uh-huh. let's wait an hour. Uh-huh. I'm going to. I already know. I'm pre-delighted, okay, to meet you. And so I'm so happy that you're here and thanks for your time. I've told my listeners already a little bit about you and kind of who you are, but I wonder if you and I could just walk it back to the beginning. Tell us this first. Where are you from? What was your like, this was me as a kid and we're going to get all the way up to you (laughs) having what is literally the best job in the world. Okay. So let's see from the beginning, not to bore your audience, born and raised in Connecticut. Now I am in Northern California, wine country, of course, for the last eight years. A small little tech company that people may have heard of called Google is what brought me out here eight years ago for I hope they, I hope they make it. I hope yeah. they make it. I hope they make a go of it. Yeah. Yeah. I have a feeling mm-hmm. that search is gonna die. I uh-huh. doubt it. I would say, you know, my my mother says that I was shy, introverted. She tells my friends that now, and they never they don't buy it until they meet her and they're like, oh, in comparison to like my yeah, my mother, that literally he's shy and introverted because no one, no one buys that. Grew up in a single family household. So my father and my mother got divorced when I was young. He was around, but it was really my mother and I like growing up, strong relationship. Really am still a mama's boy, but back then it was bad. Like I would not leave her <laughs> side, you know, yeah. until like seven, eight years old. It was, it was, it was bad. But you know, eventually you grow up and you grow out of that. Went to the best university ever, the University of Yukon, go Huskies for my undergrad. And then for my master's degree, went to the University of Rhode Island for human resource and labor relations, which actually is my full-time primary job. People ask me all the time, like, how you manage both? And I'm like, prioritization and thank God for a calendar. Like, that is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You. Okay. So that's a lot on your plate that you have piled up there. And I can understand why you wouldn't want to get rid of any of it. So how did you get to Northern California from the East Coast? Okay. So again, job at Google is what brought me out to California. And I've been here ever since for eight years. How I got into wine, it's really recent. Growing up, yeah, really recent. Only about three or four years. Get out of here. I swear. So people just find this really hard to believe. So because of part of my family is Jamaican and from the Caribbean. So just wine is not the biggest thing there. It's really the cocktails and it's it's the beer, right? It's the spirits. So growing up, like my parents and family just didn't really have wine around. It was more about rum and beer and, you know, Hennessy and other like hard, like hard, yeah, hard liquor. And so for me, the only time I really had wine, I was never ignorant enough to turn down champagne at an anniversary. Of, of course like, not. I knew enough, like someone was pouring champagne. I'm like, 
I'll have one. But I never bought a bottle of wine myself until I moved out to California. Wow. Never happened. Wow. So for me, like when in Rome, I'm out in California and wineries are like 15 minutes away from my house. So my in-laws were like, hey, you know, we're members of these wineries up in Napa and Sonoma. Like, let's go wine tasting. I'm just like, yeah, OK. Like, it's a good, you know, good excuse to hang with my in-laws. And I'm like, it is alcohol, right? Sure. So, and they're probably paying for it. So, OK, yeah, we'll come. Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> you know, part, part of those memberships. Uh-huh. And you know, I had never been to a winery before ever. And I, you know, I got there and I'm like looking around. I'm like, wow, this is not what I expected. I'm thinking in my mind, like, a, you know, a storefront and there's bottles of wine because I have been in a bottle shop before and like they have tasting. I didn't realize it was like this whole, you know, experience where you're on acres of land and you have this either decked out like, you know, chateau or this big like insulated property. And I'm just looking around and someone's tasting over there. Another person has like a cheese platter. And then a group of people are just sitting there laughing. And I'm just looking around like, where has this been for like the first like 30 something years of my life? So that to me, it put me on the path. Oh my gosh. I just have a million questions about that. (laughs) Just a million. Okay. I love wine. This is a known quantity about Jen Hatmaker. And so I didn't grow up in a house that had alcohol at all. So I didn't have, I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't even know about a beer. I mean, I found my way into the genre (laughs) outside of the parents' watchful eye. But for wine, I had to have, when I first started drinking wine, which for me was like right at 30. So I wasn't like too far off from you. I had front door wines. When I tell you, I I can't believe I'm going to tell you this because this is your whole life. Like, All right, I'm, I'm like, okay, how do I start drinking wine? How can I enjoy it? Because <laughs> you, you're looking at the wine environment, like wine culture is delightful. I'm like, mm-hmm. I want to be a part of these people having their cheese boards, sipping their wine at the Chateau. I want this, same as you. So I guess what I first started trying was like, it was the white Zinfandel. <laughs> oh boy, what was the brand? I'm Trash, garbage, okay. like whatever is the grossest thing. I think that's what I had. <laughs> it couldn't have been $7. And then it went to something sweet, like a Moscato okay. or a Riesling Ooh. even, and just okay. found my way in. Now I'm such a professional wine drinker. I've discovered that I love them robust. Like I like to fork and knife my wine, like the heartier, like big, huge, smoky, peppery, leathery flavors. But it took me a while to get there. Of course. Were you able, even that very day, to drink Mm -hmm. wine and go, I like how this tastes? Or were you like, because I would not have been able to drink at the beginning the kind of wine that I love now. So I thought it tastes good, but that was my vocabulary back then. Not to mention... My in-laws, they're part of, you know, these wineries with, to your point, these complex, super expensive, like notable wines, right? So I, I think back to three, four years ago, I didn't have the same appreciation I do it for them now, right? So when the first wine that you're trying in a flight is these heavy Napa cabs, right? To your point, leathery, full of tannins. I don't think a novice palate can really appreciate that. I know that was my, like, that was my profile, my flavor profile. Like, I love Napa cabs, but to enjoy them the way I do now, absolutely not. So I didn't go yuck. I didn't go yuck, but it was just like, oh, like, I like this and really couldn't articulate why. 
Totally. And I want to give like chef's kiss to Northern California wine country up there, which is where I learned, even as a very experienced wine drinker, that yes, I do indeed love Chardonnay. I just need to have the right Chardonnay. I need to have it from a place where Chardonnay is supposed to be grown. And that is where it's supposed to be. So the Chardonnays of your region are so delicious to me. I will just never, ever get enough of them. But you can learn. You can learn what makes wine delicious and you can learn about flavors and all of it. The fact that this is your job and you're four years in is proof positive. (laughs) All right. So let me ask you this now because you are an expert. I don't care how long you've been at it. All right. What, in your opinion, what makes a wine good? What separates a bottle of like two buck chuck, right? From let's just say even a like a $50 bottle of wine that's like up a notch, like what's the difference? And why does that matter? And why should we fork out the money for the better wine? So there's a couple of ways to dissect this. The first thing is don't put quality on price. I have had wines that have been $7 and are the best wines for that like that price point or it's on my table. I've had $700 bottles of wine that I'm like, yeah, this is not this is not for me. I think when we go for quality, there's a couple of things to look at, like balance, finish. So, is it a poorly made wine in the sense of it's just too much sugar or for a cab for example, you want that lengthy finish, right? If it's too light in body and not balanced correctly, then it's just like, there's no taste on your palate. Like after, you know what I mean? Like you drink it. Those are the wines where I would say they're poorly made wines. But I think to your earlier point, everyone's palate is different. So to me, the overall theme is if it's good to you, then it's a quality wine, whether it costs 50 bucks or like, or five bucks. And I think Part of the challenge, and overall, I love the wine industry and I love wine drinkers, but some of my biggest pet peeves are when someone's like, well, because they don't like this wine, it's not quality wine. So for me, for example, you mentioned Moscato. Not really for me, but I can really taste one and I can tell the difference between a poorly made one and actually one right that it's made properly, even though it doesn't match my flavor profile. Chardonnay, not a fan of uh, oaky Chardonnays. I can appreciate them for what they are. If they're paired correctly, it's doable for me. But I would never say like, oh, Oki Chardonnays are not real Chardonnays or they're not quality. That's just Mm. not true. Ah, I like this. I like this approach because people do get to love what they love. Mm -hmm. And if they love an absolutely syrupy sweet wine, then they do. Then that means their glass of wine is delicious to them. And they are enjoying it with their meal. I appreciate that approach so much that there's not, wine can be intimidating, as you know. It can, it can. It can can be an intimidating genre. It comes with, depending on who you're speaking to, a lot of rules, some both seen and unseen, obviously a vocabulary that you feel a little anxious. So let's talk, let's say somebody's in a restaurant. Okay. And they're feeling a little bit anxious. Like, am I being judged? Is a sommelier judging me? Is my server judging me? How do I order a glass of wine that's decent? And I will even admit, sometimes <laughs> I will look at a list of wine and I'm like, what I want just by nature of, of the variety is that cheapest one because that's the type I want. And I'm reluctant to order it because I feel like, oh, I'm just ordering the cheapest white wine on their menu. So let's talk about how you advise patrons when they're in a restaurant they want to have a good glass of wine 
and they want to order it well, whether or not they can pronounce it correctly or not. Like what's restaurant etiquette for good wine drinking? Okay. First thing I would say is remember that you're the patron. So it's, I think it's fascinating that we're worried about what Psalms and restaurants going to think. I think they should be worried about what we're going to think, right? We're the paying ones coming in there. So if you're going to a restaurant and the Psalm is embarrassing you or they seem frustrated, you have to ask the question, is that the restaurant that you want to patronize with your dollar? I like this. So that's, that's the first thing. Now, research, research, research. So everyone has a favorite food, right? Menus are readily available online before you go into a restaurant, right? Assuming that it's pre-planned, right? You're not just walking in. So I think if you have a favorite food, you start there. And then there's so much great research online, you know, whether it's it's talking to a local Psalm or going to a bottle shop or just looking up like, I like, I don't know, pick your food, uh, lamb chops. So I want a peppery Syrah. And you look up multiple peppers, peppery Syrahs, and then you look on their wine list. And then you go online. I'll be the first one to admit with some of the French word, like I have to like sound it out or totally. I'm, on, I'm on YouTube. Yeah. Like, all right, so like seriously, like they like, all right, like replay like seven times. I'm like, what was that? Like, was that a, was, <laughs> so was, that a, was that a vowel? Right. But I also think when you lead with humility and kindness in the sense of like, you know, you bring the psalm aside and, you know, let's say, for example, and I've done it. I've been out with someone that has much more experience with wine than I do. And I'm like, look, I'm not trying to look crazy. So I'll bring the, I'll go to the bathroom and I'll bring the psalm mm-hmm. aside and like, look, I'm trying to impress this person. What, like, mm-hmm. what, like, what should I order? But I mean, seriously, you know, in all like seriousness, like, we shouldn't be intimidated by these things. You know, one of the things I say to novice, and this isn't even myself, is you have to build up to things. So it's like, it's not, it's not a lack of intelligence, it's just a lack of experience. It's like, I don't know if you have kids, but it's like, if you introduced astrophysics to a five-year-old, it's not that they're lacking in intelligence, they just haven't built up to that point, right? Like it's, it's steps. It's asking a one-year-old that just learned how to walk to run a marathon. They have legs and they're walking and they can sort of run, but it's like, it takes steps to build up to that. So I think when people go into something new and they expect to be as experienced as you and I that have been drinking wine at this point for several years, those are unrealistic expectations, right? So to me is you start small what you know and you build up from there. But again, I'll repeat what I said before. When going into restaurants, why are we adapting to them? They should adapt to us. We're the paying here, customers. Here, That's so right. I, I have literally not gone back to places because I didn't feel, and this is just wineries, restaurants, wherever it is, because I wasn't treated with respect. I love this. You're 100% right. That is the correct calculus of how that dynamic should go. In a restaurant setting, I wonder, I don't even know if you have an answer to this, but just in general, like let's just say a restaurant has a, a fairly decent wine selection. Would you say, in your opinion, there are any like types of wines or regions or however you want to say it that are maybe underrated that we should be ordering more of or should we at least consider? Yeah, I'm a little scared because if I start talking about them, like they're appropriately priced wines. And if you start talking about them, Uh that's it. You're going to shoot them up to the stratosphere (laughs) and now they're going to be expensive. Uh I will say some, you know, to me. Pinot goes with just about, it's perfect for food. It goes with just about everything. I think, and this is my, I guess, intermediate opinion when it comes to wine knowledge, that 
you know, reds go with meats and whites go with fish and that's the way to do it. You go to other countries, I mean, they drink reds with fish, right? Totally. So I mean, go back to our earlier point about drinking what you like and if it matches your flavor palette, go with it. So to me, when in doubt, Pinot is easy to pronounce. People, Most people know about them and they go perfectly with most foods in general. I think for underrated, sorry, that's a big one. Everybody, even if you don't know about wine, has heard of champagne. But this is just for your audience. You know, every every champagne is a sparkling, but not every sparkling is a champagne, right? right? So there's regions like Spain that make cavas and others that make, even American sparkling are delicious that are often poo-pooed. And I'm like, I wouldn't do that, right? Champagne is champagne, no argument. But there's other great sparkling out there, whether you're going to Australia or even now, for those that know about like the Duro Valley in Portugal, that's more known for like ports, they make a sparkling there. A couple of companies make sparkling theirs now too. So I would try those out. So those are, like I said, try other sparklings besides champagne. Oh, I love that answer. That's a great answer. And sometimes people, I'm this way, if I don't necessarily gear my wine toward my food, like the old rules suggest that you should, I sometimes gear my wine toward the season. Like when it is, I live in Texas. And so in okay. the summer, it's just it's hot. It's hot as the surface of the sun. And sometimes it's hard for me to think about having a very robust cab because it's just too hot. And I, so gotcha. I will order the coldest glass of white Rose. wine with my okay. steak. Like I just don't <laughs> care. I just don't care. It's, it's how I want it to go. You're absolutely, you're absolutely I, right. I really love about you. I really, really love about your work and the way that you're approaching food and wine is the way that you advocate for diversity and inclusion in this particular industry, which is notoriously white. And so I would just love to hear you talk about why obviously this matters to you personally, but why it matters to the industry and and what can we do as just ordinary like patrons and customers because this matters to me. This is a big deal in my world as well. And what do we, our, our consumer dollars are powerful and our voices can be powerful. So I just kind of like to hear you talk about your approach to that and how us ordinary consumers can kind of join that conversation and movement and even reversal out of an industry that is so white into being something that is way more broadly represented. Absolutely. So the wine got my attention, no doubt, but the diversity piece is what really fuels my passion and has sustained me in this industry. Like I'm not in it prim even primarily for the wine. It's more so raising awareness for a product and an industry that more diverse individuals like you and I should be in. So for me, and you asked me like, what should we do? I think the first thing is be aware who's making like your product, right? whatever it is, wine accessories, wine, everything in between, the people are always the most important thing about that, right? So for me, the first experience I had at a winery was not necessarily a successful one. I remember going to a winery that were remain unnamed and they treated me like a second-class citizen. I think there were assumptions made, well, here's our cheapest you know, bottle of wine you know, on the menu. And I'm just kind of like looking, not really paying attention to me, feeling like they're talking down to me. That was an experience where I'm like, what's going on? Everything I heard about wine is that it's a connector. So I'm like, I don't really feel connected to this winery. Like, what, like what's going on here? And not to speak for 
diverse individuals and obviously not to speak for all black individuals, but it's a little bit of history lesson. Going back, you know, 40 or 50 years where we didn't necessarily have the economic standing that we do now, it's understandable that wine wasn't accessible to us. To your point, it was for rich white men of a certain age. Now you fast forward to where we are now, and now we have some economic like means. We have a lot of economic means, but we're still lacking the knowledge because of the historical things that have happened, right? So to me, it's to raise awareness from that standpoint is where I like to showcase, okay, I am clearly a Black man that I'm going into these, these atmospheres, and what's the proper etiquette, right? How do you think about wine? What should you wear? I want individuals to look at my Instagram or read my articles and feel comfortable about being in these spaces. So that's from the consumer standpoint. From the people that are actually supplying the product, I've had discussions with many vintners and owners, and I've been very blunt and direct when I have said, I understand that you may be developing your narrative when it comes to diversity, right? Whatever color it may be. But there's one color for a for-profit business should always care about, and that's green, and mm -hmm. that's money, right? Mm -hmm. So even if you don't agree with the morality of it, even if you're still trying to understand how to do these things, you're in it to make money. So when you're missing a large amount of the population that knows nothing about wine, not feel comfortable, how is that helping or hurting your bottom line? So mm -hmm. the black dollar is almost a trillion dollars that you're missing out on right, that we're spending on something else because we don't feel comfortable in these in these areas. Take women, for example. Winemakers in California, it's only 10% for women, like women that are actually winemakers, right? How do, how do we increase that? Even though women drinkers are now, I think, around 52%. So those numbers are, are considerably off. So those are the things I look at. Those are things I think people should care about, not just what's in the bottle, but what goes into it. So for me, when I'm looking at different winemakers or different businesses to patronize, I want to see the story. What does their board look like? Are there women there? Are there African-American? Are there Latinx, right? That's good. What are they doing when it comes to sustainability? What are they doing when it comes to giving back, right, to the earth or to individuals, charities? Those are things I care about because there's so many different wine brands out there. If you're not exercising these things, why, why am I drinking your wine? So good. That's so good. That's so important and so possible. Like, can you, on the on the positive side of that conversation, tell us a couple of your favorite winemakers or vineyards oh. that you feel like these, <laughs> these people are nailing it, like from top to bottom, in staff, in leadership, in representation, in sustainability, like we could feel good about spending our dollars on this wine. God, I'm trying to, let's see, there's so many. For I love I know. For, for wineries, I would start with Queen of the Vines, Thea Patra Lee. Uh, oh, I'm like literally yeah. grabbing my pen. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was younger, you know, I didn't understand. I didn't know the word heroin, right? So as kids do, they come up with the funniest things. I said Shiro instead of hero because I had no idea, right? Sure. Like how to differentiate between a male and female. So <laughs> now I call them my Shiro. She's definitely a Shiro. She's a Shiro of mine. Black female owned. She is a trial attorney and a partner by day, and then winemaker and vintner by night. I don't know. People ask me how I do it. I don't know how she does it. Her staff, the entire staff, which is small, but all diverse individuals, right? Women, Latinx, African-American, 
that is someone that people should take a look at. Her wine is great, so let's start with that. But she's a better person than she is a winemaker. And that's definitely a brand that I would I would take a look at. Northern California? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mendocino mm-hmm. technically is right on the Sonoma border and Mendocino and Yorkville, but that's a brand that I would go after right away. Right on. Oh, if you think I'm not going online to order that wine, <laughs> think again. Thanks for the recommendation. I love that. Absolutely. That matters. And I think our consum- we shouldn't underestimate our consumer dollars because we are telling the market what we care about and who we want to support. And, and so that matters. That matters as well. And I really like that you're in there asking the hard questions. How do those conversations go? Like, do you feel like you are gaining traction behind closed doors as you talk to these sort of potential change agents, but also certainly the ones that are pulling the levers at the time? I'm curious if you hit a lot of resistance or if you feel like the wind's at your back or both. You know, I think both. I think for, and you're seeing in the market, the brands that are more agreeable to this and keep an open mind. You're seeing the success they're having with a broader age range and demographic demographics, right? They're they're hitting that 21 to 38, right, or 35 from all races and all genders. Where there is still a notion that you must cater to the old white man male. And and again, it's been very successful for you for 40 or 50 years. The question I pose is, and this is no knock on anyone because we all are going to come to it, but Eventually, we are all going to pass, right? That's and right. For those that, for the, that's just true. That's just mm-hmm. a fact, right? The older white male, that's 60 or 70, how many years do they have remaining versus 21-year-old that knows nothing about wine? How do you adopt that 21 or 22-year-old? The gap in age is nothing compared to the gap in the sense of how they consume wine. So, you know, not to go off on a tangent, but you think about canned wine or what someone older considers real wine versus someone younger it's like i just want to drink what i love and i enjoy and find a way to bridge that where it's like yes you can have the more classic or traditional wine versus the wine for someone that's younger has a different flavor like profile and i think those are the conversations i have i'm fortunate enough to look at it or be involved in multiple means of attack in the sense of Yes, I'm a consumer buying these things. So that's the first level of control that I have. Then as a social media influencer, I have a level of control there. But as my mentor, Julia Coney, talked about when she said like, well, hey, you should start writing. And I'm just like, I don't know. And she's like, look, we don't have enough diverse Black voices writing about it. It's great that you're on social media advocating for these things from that standpoint. It's great that as a consumer, you have the means to buy most wines. But now for the person in trade or the consumer that's reading these major journals, right, articles, we don't have enough Black voices telling our point of view. And when she said that, I was like, you know what, you're absolutely right. So those are things. You having me on your show, another prime example of, okay, this is clearly podcasts or a channel where people consume information. We need our collective voices out there talking about these things, right? Not just approaching it from one point of view, multiple points of attack. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. 
Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. So let's talk about this career that you invented and created and now it's yours. <laughs> like you were like, hey, I'm at a vineyard. I'm kind of enjoying this vibe. I'm going to make up a job and it's going to be a job that I have in addition to my other job. So can you talk about the innovation of what it is you do and how you got there and how you stepped it up bit by bit all the way to kind of the influence that you have in just really a short amount of time. Four years is not that long. Yeah. And, and key point. So four years I've been drinking wine. I started, this is a pandemic move. I started in March of 2020. It has been two and a half years that I could. And the reason I know it's March is that's when the pandemic hit. That's when everything really closed down. And that's where my journey began. For an extrovert, one of the biggest punishments you can give them is to put them in a 2000 square foot box where nowhere to go. And my wife, I love her to death. She loves me. But it was just like, I need you to get out of this house. Like I was going, I was going crazy being stuck. It was just because I'm a social person. I draw energy from that. gen. so talking to my wife is great. But like 24 hours of that, it was just like for weeks, I was like, I need something else. So growing up in Connecticut, dealing with real cold. That's I like right. to joke that I I don't get <laughs> California cold right here. Yeah, you're not wrong. Uh, right, right, right. Uh-huh. It's like the low is like 48 degrees. The high is like 55 or 60 in the winter time. So in March, I'm just like, give me a jacket and I'm gonna go outside. So that was one of the places where I actually felt safe. Where I'm like, I could be sitting at one end of the table. You could be eight or nine feet away, and we can have a conversation. And I'm not really worried about COVID. So I remember I'm like, well, what can I do, right? I've been talking about for months how I don't see enough diversity in the wine industry. You really need to put your money where your mouth is and do something about it. So I didn't have an Instagram and I never asking my wife, I'm like, I'm 40 years old. Am I too old to like start a blog? She's like, no, <laughs> like, like do it. Right. And I'm like, I'm just going to write like what I see, no matter how naive or how inexperienced I am when it comes to this, I'm just going to start where I am. And there's going to be a lot of individuals that feel the same way to your earlier of point. Of course. About, how do you get started in this, right? I didn't know any language whatsoever. I'm just like, this tastes good. This tastes bad. Like, that's fine. Just started there. And I, st- and I started my Instagram with, again, like the joke, negative four followers. Like, there was no, <laughs> right? Like, no, like none. And I, you, should, you, should, you should look back. I'm sure you probably do it, right? You go back to your earlier podcast. Oh, or you go back oh it's to your, rough. And, you're, and you, like, look at it with, like, a, a, a half smile, like, Right, because (laughs) (laughs) how much you've grown. Yeah, and I just started, you know, calling up wineries, sending emails. And to my point about humility and just being honest, I would reach out and say, "Look, I know very little about wine. I've only officially been drinking wine for a couple of years. 
I have like 50 followers. Here's what I'm looking to do. I got some hard no's. I kind of got the, who are you? But I also got some yeses where it's like, you know what? Come on up to Sonoma. Come on up to Napa. Like, why not? Especially at a time where many people weren't traveling. They were begging people to come in. because Oh, no that's one, so true. Right? Yeah. No one knows doing it. And like I said, the, the wine is important. But for me, it was always the story behind the wine. Right. And I wanted to tell that story because I feel like that's an entry point for those that are either intimidated or don't know much about wine. They do know how they feel about people. They do know how they feel about sustainability or diversity or food. Those are things that everyone can like see and relate to versus wine. So that's how I got started in March of 2020 was just, again, being a social influencer. By the summertime, I think it was up to three or four thousand. And by the end of the year, I think I hit the big 10K. And I'm often asked, well, what's my secret? And I think the main thing is just authenticity. I just really talked about what I knew and what I didn't know. And I hope people enjoyed it. Apparently they have. And here I am two and a half years later. Mm. Would you, because this answer could go either way. And I would actually understand both answers. Would you ever want this to be your full and only career? Or is it, do you love it kind of over here on the side where it doesn't have to hold that gravitas? I'm telling you, you're hitting the key question because I'm asking that all the time. Like, are you going to quit your job? The thing that both my jobs, my HR job and this writing slash influencer have in common is people, right? That's where my passion is. And I don't think I need to give up either. I've gone to school and trained a long time to be in, in human resources. So to walk away from that would be a difficult decision because I do love it. It's not, wine is not a distraction in the way of like, I hate my job, so this is the outlet. It just complements it or it's just something different to keep me interested, honestly, in both. So it would be an interesting, I think, experiment to see if I actually did do wine full time, what would that look like? Right. Would I be grasping for something else because I like to do like do multiple things, but on its own, it's more enough to keep my attention. I do enjoy doing it, like working in the industry, but it's really about the people. And that's why I focus on those things in my story versus talking about the technicality of wine. That's important. There's obviously a lot of articles about that. That's not for me. I rather talk about you, Jen, than than talk about the intricacies of hosting a podcast, let others get into the technicality of that. Sure. I'm more interested in you, Jen, right? And your origin story and how you got here and how you've grown, right? And how, you know what I mean? You're spreading your message versus the technical aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Totally. I completely get that. I have several chambers of work and I love them all. And I don't want to pick just one. I wouldn't want to have to sacrifice one just to do the other one more. And I think that some of us are just kind of geared that way that we love what we love for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And if we're able to do more than one thing, then that's kind of the way my creative brain works too. What about your wife? She into all this? She a wine drinker? <laughs> like, what does she think of this? She likes wine, but she doesn't, she doesn't love it. So whenever I, it's one of those record scratching moments when she'll look at me and say like, hey, why don't you open up a bottle of wine? It's like, huh? Like you kind of like, it never, it's usually me opening up a bottle she's like okay pour me very little or i'll have like what you're having right but she's not a big wine drinker she is a a big supporter and advocate of diversity right so i think that's the part where 
she was the one that pushed me in the beginning. It was like, you should do like, you need to do this. This is a part of who you are. It's not just some job of yours. Like this is who you are. So I couldn't do this if she didn't support me. It's hard to juggle multiple things as I'm sure, you know, it's like, you have, you know, now two careers and you have family and friends and I have my wife, and other things. So if she wasn't okay with it, or it was like every time I'm saying I'm going on a press trip somewhere, she's giving me the side eye or about like, why are you gone? I wouldn't be able to do the things that I do. So I'll be the first one to say like my biggest supporter and the person that sustains me in this is her. Otherwise, I would have to say no to probably 50 to 75% of things. There's just no way. But yeah, not a big, not a big wine drinker. Well, yeah. you know what? That's more for you. Exactly. It's more for you. And I'm guessing probably all your neighbors are like, this is our favorite neighbor. Oh, oh my God. He always has the wines. So you would think that, right? Being in Northern California and there's wineries everywhere, it's hard to give away wine to people because it's just like, I have access to it. My circle that's outside of the area, that's who I'm like, they're best friends because it's just like, you know, you get sent so much free stuff that I can't drink this all or store that it. That is so true. So I will literally put, I just got finished last week putting 12 bottles in the case and like sending it off to various like friends and family members and parents of friends and stuff like that. I'm like, well, I got 12 bottles. And it's funny, every time I walk out of the door with a case, my wife is like, yes, because there were, because I swear, they were just, there were bottles on like the floor, right? In cases where she's like tripping over them. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm trying, but I was like, now brands send them without even asking, which I'm super appreciative. I don't want to sound like this is definitely a 1% problem. Like, oh, I have too much yes. wine. Yes. But you get, you get the practicality of it. Like uh -huh. it, it starts oh, I do. up, right? It's just like, well, where do you put all this? And for sure. So it's just, it's difficult, but yeah. I have a very tiny house. I mean, I feel like I want all the, the like vineyards to send me cases and cases of wine, but upon second thought, what in the world would I do with all that? So yes, you are hundred percent right. Yeah. I love your approach to all the things that you do. And so obviously you make us all feel like, yes, like fancy wine, fancy experiences can be fun and certainly can be for everyone, obviously, but also we get to like what we like. And so do you have guilty pleasure, either wine or cocktail that's trash? Like it's trashy, <laughs> it's lowbrow. You're not supposed to like it because you're a fancy wine guy, but uh, you're just like, I don't even, bottoms up. I don't care. I'm a fan of trying the below $15 like table wines. You know, there's some that are effervescent in the sense of I like the bubbles and I like, you know what I mean? Like, and I won't name the brand because I don't want to downplay them for what they are. But I think, like I said earlier, there's some wines where they don't cost a lot. So I get sent some of the most expensive complex wines in the world. I'll be the first one to tell you, right? Like I had, you know what I mean? Like, so I think when your palate increases and you start going for more expensive wines to there's this thought of like two buck chuck or like, well, Noel, what are you doing drinking this $10 bottle of wine? I'm like, first of all, I'm not rolling in it. So I wish I can go out and buy like $500 wine, you know, bottles of wine all the time. Like I can't. But I also think it's appreciation for what something is where, yes, it's $11, but I just like the flavor profile, right? Or you're talking about being in Texas and it being hot. 
I'll drink rosé, like a $12 bottle of rosé on my porch and I'm unapologetic about it, right? It's so truly milk. much same. And I, I guess part of it is because it's relatively warm in California all year round. But even if it wasn't, I'll drink a, in wintertime when I go back home to like Connecticut and New England, I'll drink, you know, whites that are more or wines that are more associated with like hot months in the winter in the wintertime. But as far as any particular brand is just, again, I don't want to call them out. And I think there's enough of them where just more so, even though your palate might expand, this is the best way to put it, it might expand. I don't leave behind the brands that I tried in the beginning that I actually do enjoy the taste. Great. I love it. And sometimes we just want a six pack of cheap beer. That's, that's fine right. too. Sometimes just, that's what yeah, we want that day. You want, you want the lowbrow for it. And whether it's TV or food, like I mean, it's like, even if you have the means to go out and enjoy a five, you know, a mission, a five-star Michelin like dinner every night, do you really want to eat like that at like seven days a week? Sometimes you just want to go to a greasy spoon, a fast food restaurant and just eat something, right? Same thing with snacks. I just want some cheat. I just want some Cheetos. I just want to, you know, <laughs> Michelob light, right? I just, you know, I'm like, totally. I don't want some big <laughs> fancy. I got to put on like a three-piece suit and like sit there and try to pronounce some of these French. I'm just like, just, can we just go get a burger? And I think wine is wine is the same exact way. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. Okay, two more questions. So we're going to land the plane. I just wrote a cookbook and I included in there just a lot of pairings that I love. I'm a zero expert. These are primarily just, this is my personal preference and this is my cookbook. So I'm going to write it on this page that you can drink this with this. But one of the meals that I have in there which is super easy. So my front door is kind of like yours. Anybody can cook. Cooking is not complicated. does not have to be fancy. You do not have to be credentialed. Like anybody can do it. And so I have a roast chicken recipe that is like, it's, it's a five minute prep and it is the ROI on it is so high based on the investment. So let's just say that you're looking at this menu and it's like, it's a buttery, lemony thyme roast chicken. And we're going to have it with, we're going to have it with mashed potatoes. And it comes with like this onion gravy that I make out of all the pan drippings and some sort of delicious roasted vegetable. What would you pair it with? So not to be repetitive, the first thing I would say is pair it with whatever you like for your flavor profile. I think with roasted chicken in general, you could pair it with white, red, rosé. Whatever so makes sense, right? Like you don't need, right? Like there, there are some foods, right? Like higher in acid or that are fatty that it's like, yeah, it's hard to pair those with something light because for your audience that doesn't, you know, that's not aware, you want the flavor profiles to really complement each other and match up. So if they're too far apart where you have something that's very acidy, but then something that's the opposite where it's, sweet, it's just not going to work, right? So you want something that complements it. But with roasted chicken, I think the flavor profile is mild enough that you could pair it with anything. So, but I think the caveat is when you talked about, you said a great, what was the gravy again? You said thyme and- I take all the pan drippings out of that chicken with, and then I do like a kind of a creamy gravy with that to like douse the whole thing. It's real, it's real fatty, real Ooh, rich. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then maybe I still think you could pair with anything, but I'm thinking- a Sonoma, like a Sonoma Coast Pinot, that might go really well. Or you asked earlier about something that's not necessarily thought of. I would go with a Gamay, a Boujolet. I would go with Boujolet and try and try that flavor profile with that. I think that would go well. 
But you can never go wrong with with that. I would go with an un-oaked Chardonnay for sure. I wouldn't go with oaked. And then I think you could do it with a, a lighter body cab. I think anything stronger than that would completely over like overpower the meat. But I would stick with uh, Pinot or I would go with Gamay. Mm, such good suggestions. A Pinot is just, it's just irreplaceable. It really is like when in doubt, home cooks, put a good bottle of Pinot on your table and it will work. It will work. It will be delicious. It could go up or it could go down depending on how the food is. So versatile. Like so it, versatile. It, re- it really is. Chicken, fatty meats, drinking on its own is just to me the most versatile wine to drink with food. Where you're, when you have doubts, try a Pinot and it will match up. That yeah. is a great, great bit of advice. Here's the hardest question of all. Uh oh, I'm scared. Well, and I don't even know. I just don't even know if you can have a possible answer to this. And maybe you do. Okay, it's it's two part question. Okay. Number one, what's your favorite wine just of all time? You're forced to pick. I'm making you pick because this is my show and you have to give okay. me an answer. Favorite okay. wine of all time. And then your favorite wine experience of all time. And those aren't necessarily the same thing. Um, time when just wine was a part of an experience that you were like, this will go down in the books. So they're the same place. <gasps> oh, okay. Yeah, the same Two place. There's, and there's a lot of factors going into it. For sure, quality, but I'm also sentimental. The first winery that I ever joined, and I had been to probably seven to 10 before I actually joined my first wine club, was Chateau St. Jean in Sonoma, California. I love and that place. Have you been? Yes, I love yes. it. Yes, okay. Oh my God, love like love that place. And we had been, I live in Sonoma County. So we had been to a few different places and, you know, you kind of, you know, have the gambit of some, like the wine was better at some, the hospitality was better at others, right? This to me was like the perfect hospitality and then also wine. So it was the first winery I ever joined, like at like ever. And I remember when they brought it over, I'm like, you know what? This is the place, right? I love the people. I love the view. That, And it was, you've been to wine before. Sometimes you have to be in the mood. Some of them are just a little over the top where it's just like, I can't take all this stimulus at once, right? I like know it's what just, you mean. Right? <laughs> like uh-huh. I, like I, I'll, I'll tell people when they visit Napa Sonoma, sometimes you go into what I call the Disneyland of winery. Like it's just, it's an amusement park, right? And that's not a bad thing. Right. I love amusement parks, but sometimes you want something that's just more balanced. So you don't necessarily want like a barn, but you also don't want this big, huge structure. So to me, with the Chateau, like it was perfect. Great outdoor seating. I'm looking at the mountains. So that to me was the best experience I've ever had at a winery where if it, it was just like it was a no brainer to join. And again, my wife is not the biggest like wine fan. But when I said, like, we should join, she was like, absolutely, like, this is it. So it was kind of like, all right, we're doing it. And then their Saint-Sapage, which is a five Bordeaux blend for those that don't know French, is the best cab I've ever had. And I'm a cab rat. So Saint, yeah, so Saint-Sapage. Like okay. I don't know how to spell that, so I'm spelling it phonetically, <laughs> and I will look it up later and find it. Great. Awesome. I love this for you. I just love that you jumped in to an entire industry that you were brand new to and 
and just went for it. I love it. I love the humility of it. I love the hubris of it. It's kind of both. You held one in each hand. No argument. Uh And went forward. And I love that what you built was true and authentic. And that's why you have so many followers. Like it wouldn't necessarily have gone that way if you were pretentious or you were putting on airs or the fact that you just came out as you are, who you are, like you are, is why so many people are now like following you and listening to you and learning from you. And I'm especially proud that you are working from inside the industry as an influencer so that it can do better so that it can have far more representation and diversity and inclusion. And this is, this is a big deal and it matters. And I just love it. I mean, hats off. I'm just so happy to have met you and so glad you came on the show today. That's it. I have one more question. Okay. And this is the question I ask every guest I have, like on every single series. And please answer this however you want. Sometimes uh, the answers I get are earnest and sweet, and sometimes they are absurd. And I like them all. So (laughs) you can answer it however you feel like today. This is the question. What is saving your life right now? I think the the wine industry saved my life. And what I mean by that is I was not doing well, like most people during the pandemic, you know, knock on wood, I didn't get COVID, but mental, my mental health was not, it really was affecting me to be stuck in the house and really no one to talk to besides my wife and nowhere to go. Like I didn't realize like how those borders or boundaries are really affecting me and I think without it I would have spiraled in the sense of I could see the long-term play where it would affect my marriage and it would affect my friendships and it would affect just my whole outlook because you know I would have been indoors for at least a year right At, at minimum so to me that outlet to do the things that I love which is interacting with with people and telling real stories and helping highlight and give a voice to those that don't have as big a voice is why I'm in HR, is why I'm in the wine, food, travel, hospitality, influencing, you know, print media game, whatever you want to call it. That is the thing, that is the mechanism that I have used to improve the quality of my life. Even after the pandemic, I get so much joy from having conversations conversations like these and just seeing someone either DM me saying like, Hey, I'm coming up to Napa Sonoma, you know, where should I go? Or part of it is hubris. I mean, we all have an ego to some extent, but I think for me, the majority of it is, I know my message is resonating with individuals like you that have so much clout and resources and care about things, reach out to me and say like, I want you on my show, or I want you to travel to my country, or I want you to try my product. That's when I know I'm like, you know what, that's when when I know I've made it, right? That's when I know when someone's listening and someone cares. And yes, there's, of course, this ego in it, but it's also just, I love that kind of stuff, right? Like it, it really does, as corny as it sounds, it really does warm my heart in the sense when someone's just like, I tried this wine because I saw you try it, or I was so scared to go into a restaurant and order something. And when I saw that you did it and you did this tutorial and not be scared of this, that empowered me to feel more comfortable about showing my face right in a winery or at this restaurant so i think you know it's a bit corny but that's honestly it's how not I corny feel, it's so right? good i love that answer and and for folks like you and i who love people 
over almost everything. And our work is really just because it hinges upon people. And that's the stuff. Like that's the, that's the feedback. That's the connection that we're here for. So no, it's not corny. I understand every word of what you just said. And I think that is a fantastic answer. And you deserve all that because you are forging into a space that for a lot of people is intimidating or restrictive and you're making it accessible and possible. And so that's wonderful work. Thank you for being on the show today. Can you just tell my audience like where to find you and all of that? Mm-hmm. So I can be found at Mr. M.R. Noel Burgess. So N-O-E-L-B-U-R-G-E-S-S on Instagram. Also, if you just look up my name, and either Hope Living, Thrillist, Wine Enthusiast, your various like travel, food and wine publications, you can find my articles there. Or just the shorthand is just go to Muckrack and type in my name and you'll see all my relevant articles. Um, I also will be uh, featured, obviously, on this podcast and others. So I think probably the best thing is just to Google search me and you'll find my work. And then my website is still developing, but I hope to have it up by the end of the year, which will simply be noelburgett.com. Perfect. And for everybody listening, we'll round up all those links for you and put them in show notes. So you don't have to remember that. We'll have those for you so you can follow Noel everywhere he is, which you're going to want to. All right. That's it. Thank you. I got, that's it. Painless. That's I, it. I, I'm, I was scared. No, you nailed thank you it. So much, and I appreciate your time. And I'm just a big fan of yours. You mentioned about people thinking you're one thing. And I think you and I, you know, as a woman and then obviously as African-American, putting us in a box just doesn't work. I'm capable of doing multiple things and I'm not going to let someone put me in a box of what you should and should be doing. I want to do as many things as possible. And I see you doing that. So there's a sense of pride, right? That I, when I see what you're doing, that just empowers me to keep doing what I'm doing. So again, mm. so appreciate that you having me on. What a nice thing to say. Thank you. Here's to us. Cheers All to right. us. Cheers. Okay. Thanks, Noel. Okay, you guys, as promised, if you go over to jinhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, I will have all of the show notes for this episode, all the links that Noel mentioned to his socials and different places where you can read his writing in one spot. So you can find it there and definitely go follow him over on socials. You're going to love it. and You're going to be glad that you did. So thanks for joining me on this super fun series. Thank you for being excited about the cookbook. Your support, your love, your enthusiasm about Feed These People is so over the top and so precious to me that I will never forget it as long as I live. Thank you so much for just being the best community, really and truly the very, very best. I just don't, I can have a better one and I couldn't be more grateful. And so thanks for being good listeners to you guys. Our podcast crew sure, sure loves you. I'll tell you that much. So on behalf of Amanda and I and Lauren, her crew, we love you. We love you. We love you. Thanks for subscribing. Thank you for rating and reviewing the show. And we will see you next week, you guys. 